Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, coming up on today's programme, as the PGA Championship kicks off this weekend, we'll talk Golfgate on a global scale and I'll be joined by journalist Fionn Davenport to discuss the mind-boggling figures that are on offer to players for a breakaway tournament sponsored by money from the Middle East. The business of global golf is certainly facing an existential crisis as it struggles between the issue of legacy and money. And back home, we'll be turning to a study of Irish business, which has thrown up some very interesting information. Uh, My reading of it is that it seems Irish companies are good at revealing gender diversity and actually making some progress in this area, but not so much when it comes to disability or sexual orientation. So we'll hear about a new study which raises the question, have we made as much progress as we think we have in Ireland when it comes to diversity in the workplace? And finally, we'll be hearing from the US managing editor of the Financial Times and award-winning journalist Peter Spiegel about the economic and political landscape in the run-up to the US midterms elections. And I'll be asking him why, despite losing the presidential election last year, Donald Trump is still very much in the political picture. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. First up today, the PGA Championship takes place this weekend and it does so against the backdrop of a global golf gate that makes our little golf gate Clifton look like a teddy bear's picnic. The professional game of golf finds itself mired in controversy as a Saudi-backed breakaway tournament called the Live Golf Invitational Series is consumed and beset by claims of controversy and sports washing. Fionn Davenport, the award-winning travel writer and co-host of the very popular golf weekly podcast on Off the Ball, is here to explain all to us. Fionn, thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure, Mandy. Now, before you shed your wisdom on all of this. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a new term that slipped into the sporting lexicon, the issue of sports washing. Can you just explain to our listeners exactly what it is and give us a few examples of it? Sports washing is a way that a regime that would be seen uh, in an unsavoury light by you know the general thrust of Western society, um, uh, it's their attempt to legitimise uh, their regime using sport as a way of kind of finding favor with a general audience. So the most obvious examples in recent years has been the attempts of the United Arab Emirates. Um, So you have uh, the UAE, which bought Manchester City in 2010 and have engaged in what is frankly an incredibly successful example of it in mm. that they you know they have a very successful club they've spent an awful lot of money in the local community in manchester it's followed by qatar who mm. have done the same uh, by uh, investing in barcelona they are the owners of paris saint germain and then laterally and this is what we're going to talk about now it's the saudis so the saudis have followed suit they've seen the examples of their neighbors in the middle east and they have engaged in perhaps the biggest example of sports washing of all in that, you know, they've attracted Formula One to the kingdom. Mm. Uh, there's boxing bouts to the kingdom. And the other one is golf. So golf is the latest um, field upon which they attempt to find legitimacy or to find favor outside of their borders and say, look, we're, we are we are OK. So despite the fact that um, amnesty would be hypercritical of mm. Saudi regime, is that it's their way of, of just kind of normalising the kingdom in the eyes of the world. Yeah, and we can be critical of the countries and we can be critical of the sponsorships, but we should also take a look at the sports stars themselves. Like I read some extraordinary figures for David Beckham and his ambassadorship for Qatar for the World Cup, like 200 million to be ambassador for, mm. for the country. I mean, yeah, th- there's a sense, isn't there, that the like how much is enough for these type of players? Uh, the, it, it, it's mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that's obviously is the most legitimate. You know that's a very legitimate criticism. Mm. Is is that and and those that take the money of these so-called unsavory regimes are criticised precisely on that basis, and we criticise them and say, look, you're already wealthier wealthier than ninety nine percent of us. So how much money do you need? Mm. You know, and and are you willing to sacrifice your ethics and your sense of morality for the sake of an extra two hundred million or an extra ten million or whatever the amount is? And the answer, frankly, Mandy, for so many of them is is yes. Mm. You know, they are because 
no amount is ever enough and there's always more there's always you know a bigger house to be bought a bigger boat a bigger a private plane you know so on and so forth so so in a sense that's why sports washing works mm. is is that um there's and, always and, a, there's always another sponsor there's always somebody else around indeed. the corner who's willing to take yeah. those David Beckham brands the Lionel Messi brands um okay so let's talk a little bit about the live golf series what was proposed so, Okay, so Live Golf was first proposed last year, so in 2021, and the idea would be it would be a direct challenge to the PGA Tour, which is not the only tour in the world, but is by far the biggest one. It has the biggest players. It has most most of the money. And the idea was is that whereas an average member of the PGA Tour would play normally between 20 and 30 events a season on a schedule that kind of runs over two years, the Live Golf Tour is going to be much, much shorter. It's going to be seven regular season events where players compete for points and as part of a team. And um, so it's, it's it's a kind of a team format, slightly similar to the Ryder Cup, uh, that will conclude the season. So, But here's the key. So less events More money. for a huge <laughs> amount of money. And yeah. so even if you come dead last, you are guaranteed something like $200,000 just for participating, which are sums unheard of, even in the very lucrative uh, tour that is the PGA Tour. And the top prize there was something like $4 million. And that's for so, and and it's worth for those aren't familiar. So the typical prize money in the PGA Tour is for most events, it's a million dollars plus. For the big events, it's between one and a half to one point eight million for the winner. Mm. On the European Tour, the DP World Tour, as it is known now, those sums are a fraction of that. I mean, it's still for the likes of you and me, perhaps it's still an awful lot of money. But you might win three hundred fifty thousand euro, four hundred thousand euro for coming first. So all of a sudden. With this live tour um, and offering four million for the winner, that's two and a half times, if not three times as much as you could possibly win coming first on a PGA tour event. And anybody who's played golf will know is that winning is extraordinarily hard mm. in golf. Um, so, I mean, basically, it's just signing up to the tour is going to make you wealthier than you probably have a likelihood of being unless you are the very, very top tier players in the PGA Tour, the likes of Rory McIlroy, uh, etc., who, you know, are already doing quite well. But golf um, historically has always been about the legacy, the history of the game. Um, this is pushing them into a sort of decision between, you know, is that legacy still the 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 thing that matters most to us or is it business? Is it finance? Is it money? Because despite those figures that you've cited there, there's a huge amount of um, sports advertising that goes along with it, with the likes of Tiger Woods have, have made huge um, amounts outside the golf the, mm. the golf game itself. So is that the debate that's going on at the moment, legacy versus yes. business? It depends on where you side. If you are Greg Norman, who the very famous mm. uh, golfer Greg Norman, who is the CEO of the Live Tour, and he he has been advocating for changes to the PGA Tour for thirty plus years, and he is very you know he is he's adamant in insisting that this new tour is really for the benefit of the players. The counter argument, and it's the one that has found most favour with most everybody else. Is one is is that no, this isn't going to this is this is going to hurt the player ultimately. They might make a lot of money on the golf course, but it will hurt them in the pocket with, as you said, the likes of sponsorship. The second thing that is going to hurt them is is that the chance that they mightn't be allowed play in the four majors. Mm. So that's the Open Championship, the U.S. Open, the PGA Championship, which is currently on this weekend, and the Masters, which is the most popular tournament of all, which takes place in Augusta in in, in April. So. The players and wrapped up in all of this. And now I, I have to say, I personally find this argument probably the weakest of the three. But the idea is, is that the Live Tour is challenging the great and sacred legacy of golf because the tour that the players that that, that all the players know now was really was really invented in the late 60s by Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer, precisely for the same reason that Greg Norman is arguing today, is to make more money for the players. The tour that existed before didn't 
didn't uh, prize the players in the same way as the, the modern PGA Tour does. So this is seen as 50-odd years on as the second great revolution. And this is what Norman is arguing. Yeah, no, no. I was just going to make the point there that, okay, maybe you could posit that it, it is the, to the benefit of the players. Or you could look at it as, look, it's just raiding stock from um, the PGA Tour and the Euro Tour. And actually, it's going to draw people away from those tours which have traditionally been very successful. So a, a form of competition, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is absolutely the case. And, and Norman makes the point, he goes, look, we're just a startup. Mm. He keeps talking about the Live Tour as a startup. But it's a very, it's it's a a very that, don't big judge budget. Us by it's, what, it's a very big budget startup. I read somewhere <laughs> yeah, it's got three it's billion. It's a bigger budget than any startup. <laughs> Yeah, so this is it. So originally it was $300 million um, investment, but they've now upped it up. So it's in the billions now. They've just announced, I think, a $2 billion, uh, bump. I mean, the uh, the pockets um, of the PIF of the Saudis are, are endlessly deep. So they can really, really go. They can take on the PGA Tour. Um, and the PGA Tour, to my assessment, are genuinely worried about this. Uh, which is probably why they've reacted so strongly. And it is worth pointing out that the PGA Championship, which is taking place currently, is taking place without the defending champion, mm. which is Phil Mickelson, who is caught up very much in this entire live golf. He's been he's been serving what many think is a suspension or either just time away or as is the rumor is going around, is that he has signed with Live Golf and will tee it up with Live Golf come when their first event starts next month. Yeah, and that would be extraordinary for them, a, a big boost, as would getting some of the top five or the top 10 players. Who have they secured so far? Any of the big well, names? Well, they, they, so Phil Mickelson is one, it's just that they've been very kind of secretive. Uh, Richard Bland, the English player, came out and said uh, he's and he's been he's like, look, I'm 50 years old. I mean, he wouldn't be a big player or a top player. Mm. He's a European tour pro who's had one victory. Um, but he's the one he's won. Uh, Lee Westwood is is th- they're saying that he has been signed up. Um, Ian Poulter is one of the names that's been floated. They're going to see one of the problems is you have to ask for an exemption. You have to ask the PGA Tour to be exempted and the PGA Tour isn't releasing the names of mm. those that have asked for exemptions. Okay, so um, you, don't there are rumors know, you don't even know who's applied. No. Yeah, okay. And no, not, not, certainly none of the big, big stars. Are, are there any Irish interests at all? I heard uh, Rory McIlroy sort of hedging his bets uh, in the same way he did with the Olympics. He hasn't ruled anything out. He's kind of said, we have to see what happens. Anybody else? Well, <laughs> In fairness to Rory, Rory has been one of the most vocal opponents of Live Golf. What he has said, though, I mean, he he was very outspoken against it. But when he heard about Phil Mickelson Mm. and when he heard the rumors of these 10 other unnamed players or 13 other unnamed players that had signed letters of intent or had been exploring letters of intent, he tempered his comments somewhat and said, look, it's not for me, but I obviously, look, what people do is up to themselves. So he definitely tempered his comments, mm. but he no indication that he is anywhere near even considering mm. jumping ship to the Live Golf Tour. If you're on back to Greg Norman for a second, uh, he made some unbelievable comments uh, during a press conference. Oh, Bizarrely Unbelievable death. is putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Bizarrely, Charitable, I would yeah. say. <laughs> Insensitive, ill-informed. How Stupid. Much, yeah. How much or has he damage his own brand by association or how much has he? I don't know whether I'm I should be like saying that I think he has, but I just think those comments alone were were extraordinarily uh, insensitive. I mean, to say to say, you know, to 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 kind of dismiss the the murder of Khashoggi by saying we all make mistakes or when questions questions about Saudi Arabia's record on LGBT uh, rights by saying, look, I, I don't even have any gay friends. As you said, I mean, these are more than insensitive. They're they're offensive, mm, I think. Absolutely. You know, and I think, ma- yeah. I think many people have, have branded. And, and gen- yeah, I, I, his reputation is shot, certainly in, in, in the US where he resides. Um, he's gone in the sense of like he is persona non grata in a, in a metaphorical sense. Um, this is a man who has um, 
really kind of like cut the ties that he had. You know, this was a well-loved player. You know, he was a very popular player when he was at his height. He was, he was a, before Tiger Woods, he was the longest running number one in the 90s. You know, he was really quite something. And mm. just his behavior or his actions in the last year um, have, uh, have, I think, ruptured, uh, certainly destroyed his reputation and ruptured whatever ties he had to American golf. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a bad run of events. Yeah, he may for him. Yeah, he may yeah. he may he may regret this decision. I also read this week that Jack Nicholas said he turned down over a hundred and forty million. A hundred million. Yeah. yeah, to to face uh, to be the face of this series. Um, yeah, and which doesn't that suggest to you, Andy, is that so? Greg Norman wasn't even Live Golf's first choice. Mm, mm. You know, when you consider the the two biggest names in golf. After the death is our Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas. Despite the fact that Jack Nicholas is now, if he's not eighty years old, he's close enough. Um, these are the by far and away the two biggest names in golf. So if if you were any associated with Live Golf, these are the ones you're approaching first. So it makes mm-hmm. absolute sense that they would talk to Nicholas. Uh, Nicholas turned them down, so they turned to who? They turned to who knows? Was he the third choice? Maybe he was even lower down the rank. Um, Nicholas's comments saying that he rejected all this money really doesn't look good for Norman. No, no. Um, And Tiger Woods was very categoric in his comments this week about his lack of support for it. And again, drawing on that issue of legacy. I know it's something that you questioned, but he he was very strong on the importance of legacy in, in golf. Can I just ask you, Fionn, to finish up? Where do you think this is going? Do you think it'll be successful? Do you think it'll happen? What What's next? Oh, I think it'll happen. It's mm. definitely happening. The eight events are scheduled. They're on the schedule. Um, I mean, it's it's also interesting is that there's a slight overlap. So for in, so the PGA Championship should have taken place on a Trump golf course, Bedminster, but it was taken away from the course after the events of January 6th last year. So it's now at Southern Hills in Oklahoma. That course is now being used, the Trump Bedminster is being used for one of the live golf events with the finale taking place at Trump Doral in Florida so that the events are absolutely going to take place. I take Norman at his word um, in the sense that I do believe that he thinks and they think this is a startup, that they're in it for the long haul. Um, Even if they don't get marquee names to play in this series, the amount of money on show will, I think, inevitably tempt other players next year. Mm. And the for Live Golf, they're here for the duration. And I think the PGA Tour know this, and which is probably why the PGA Tour have pulled out all of the stops in fighting as hard as they can. And I don't think that fight is going to end anytime soon. Well, those majors carry the history of this sport. So maybe this weekend and the PGA is the perfect way to demonstrate what actually matters. Uh, is it legacy versus money? But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Fionn Davenport. Fionn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Andy. Up next, are Irish businesses doing as much as they think they are about diversity in the workplace? That's coming up on Taking Stock after the break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, Business in the Community Ireland has conducted its first study of over 120,000 employees and it's looking at diversity and inclusion in the workforce. And I'm joined now in studio by Linda O'Sullivan from Business in the Community Ireland and by Amanda Johnston from the RSA. And I want to point out at the outset that I'm not interviewing myself <laughs> and Amanda and I are not related in any way. Uh, but ladies, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Morning, Mandy. Good morning. How are you? Okay, Linda, we might start off with you. Can you just talk to us about uh, the survey itself and what you were trying to find out? Sure. Um, so at Business in the Community, we've been we've been working around on social inclusion for the last 20 years. And we know it's a topic that's really important to businesses. And over the last number of years, diversity and inclusion has just become, uh, been given much more of a strategic focus. Um, but it's easy to say. We're inclusive. It's very easy for somebody to say, look, we're inclusive. We don't mind who comes to work with us. We're open to to everyone. But actually holding yourself to account and checking that that's actually the case is a challenge. So we uh, looked at a way that businesses could measure their diversity profile. Because measuring matters, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It's, it's, you just can't get beyond it. When you start to measure, you start to see results and you can set targets on that. So last year we launched um, our Elevate Pledge 
and we did so uh, to encourage signatories to say, yeah, look, we'll come forward, we'll put our hand up, we'll start to measure our own diversity profile. And what types of businesses um, are involved in this? So Business in the Community is a network of uh, businesses we've uh, across all sectors, mostly large employers. So um, um, we'd have we'd have the likes of RSA Insurance, um, a lot of the financial services companies, uh, ICT companies, um, uh, tech across the board, across the board, really, and all household names. Um. Yeah, and, and there's some very interesting examples of how they are um, operating diversity within their own companies and we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, can I turn to you, Amanda, as one of the examples, uh, as Linda has said there. Um, your company, RSA, has achieved a 50-50 uh, gender balance. Can you just talk to me a little bit about how uh, you went about doing that? Is it something that's... Uh, you know, uh, important within your company culture and how did you achieve it? Oh, yes, it's it's part of our culture and it's so important because a diverse workforce means better decision making. It reflects our customer base um, and also it means that people are getting opportunities and it does take a relentless focus is what I'd say. It doesn't just happen. I mean, signing up to the pledge was an absolute no brainer for us. But for me, the pledge is about action. It's about doing something about it. And that means um, making a considered effort um, to ensure that, you know, men and women have opportunities in the workplace and not just in relation to gender, but outside of that. So we do have a 50-50 split in our executive team. um, And that is, you know, that has been true focus. We also have over 56% 56 of our senior leaders across our organisation are women also. And when you think about, well, how does that happen? It's about having very inclusive recruitment processes and um, making sure that you insist on it like a 50-50 split when it comes to CVs coming through the door for roles um, and that takes effort. So if you have, you know, four CVs coming in and they're all one gender, you have to stop and say, no, actually, I, w- I want to see a split mm-hmm. and then, then we'll consider the candidates. The best candidate always gets the role, but you have to start there. And it's it's so important, but the benefits are are incredible because it does. Yeah, mean and talk to me about the benefits. How do you see those benefits? Oh, well, you kind of you see it in the richer conversations you have, and indeed, on the on the exec table, um, I, I see it, um, you know, every day, and it, you see it in the culture. So it becomes part of what you do, and it can be little things as well. Like you know, we have a very supportive board. I would say when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and it's on their agenda. It's on on your CEO mm-hmm. is very supportive. We would have after every exec meeting, we would ask, well, have we looked at the DE and I lens in our decision making? And it's just something that we do now, um, and that does trickle through. And then it can be as simple as Mandy, you know, if you're if there's promotional opportunities, I kind of find you have to approach women more, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of go, Look, would you consider this? And, you know, y- you kind of have to encourage a little bit more because sometimes it could be a case of, oh, well, I don't have all the qualifications for that role, so I'm not going to put myself forward. And that's where quotas can become very important. Uh, we've seen it in, in politics as well. It's only when the, the quotas were put in that the, the, the landscape starts to change. I wouldn't have been in favour of them years ago, but I, I have to say my attitude to that uh, has has changed considerably. Um, just turning to the, the wider report for a second, Linda, on the issue of gender equality, I saw in the report that it indicates that 30% female representation at at senior executive roles but that compares to a national average of 30%. What does that tell us? Yeah, so um, I think what it tells us very clearly is that um, gender has been the starting point for a lot of companies for any action that they've taken around diversity and inclusion Um, and so companies have started setting targets um, and having done that we're starting to see the progress now. So the national average um, would be 30% um, and we saw 39%, which we were really heartened by. So is business ahead of community organisations and... I don't know if they're ahead of uh, community organisations because there's a huge number. The the gender split in, in community and voluntary organisations is probably the reverse. Really? Well, talk to me about that. Um, Do you see more women actively involved in... There's, if you looked at the, the 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 profile of kind of leadership teams within um, the non-profit sector, um, you probably would see a a, a higher um, split of uh, females holding holding senior roles. Now, still at CEO level, 
that probably is reflective of, of uh, wider society. Uh, and how important are those leadership programmes for women? I think they're they're hugely important. Um, it's important that um, people feel that they have the support there to progress. I mean, there's there's lots written and lots said about, you know, an, a job is advertised and a man reads it and uh, can do 60% of it and thinks that that's, there's a good stretch mm-hmm. opportunity for me. I'll go for it. A woman reads it and she can do 90% of it, but focuses on the 10% she can't do. And not to, I don't mean to generalise, that would be a kind of, you know, well... Well, reg- well considered. Yeah, and this comes back to that uh, principle of if I can see it, I can be it, Amanda, doesn't it? Uh, is that something that in within your company you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. We have a lot of programs where we would, you know, a mentoring as well and a recruitment process. Um, but it, it comes back to if you really put that into your culture about unlocking opportunity for people. Um, and watching people, uh, watching you know people grow in their careers. I mean, you know, our purpose is to is to help businesses and society, you know, prosper in good times and be resilient in bad times. And it ultimately comes down to helping people. Um, we're in, we're all in the people business, and um, it is great to see people do well in their careers. But you have to support them and help them along. And even things like Mandy, you know, I have two small kids. Um, you know, I. I do drop-offs and pickups, and I'd be on the team's call, sometimes outside a crash waiting for a pickup. That's okay. You know, it's okay to adapt to this new world we're in now where flexibility is 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 fantastic. And as a working mom, I really, um, you know, I really appreciate it in my organisation. Um, it is, you know, it is a very family-focused one. So having family-friendly policies helps as well because, you know, we're all trying to, juggle a lot of things in our lives and being able to to have a career and being able to be there for your family and to to just just have that flexibility makes a difference and sometimes you have to kind of say yeah we have these friendly friendly policies and you know you won't lose flexibility if you get promoted but as women I think we need to own it a bit as well and just kind of go no actually do you know what I'm doing the pickup it's grand do you know, so uh, it's just been the environment and the culture you work in is really important to that. So I definitely would encourage organisations to embrace that flexibility because it does help. And for all the positivity, uh, Linda, that we're seeing around uh, the, the percentage increase on women executives, women are still disproportionately overrepresented when it comes to the lower salary bands, aren't they? They are, yeah. And I think that's probably because there's, well, there's, there's a higher uh, proportion of women in the entry level roles. Um, in part-time roles, um, and and as a result, as a result, they're they're earning you know less, um, and that's something again that we want to encourage companies to look at and to look at. Look, you have a gender split at, at entry level, a gender balance at entry level. So, what does that look like as you go up through the organisation, and are you really doing as much as you can to bring people along that split? Yeah, you know, keep it equal. Um, just in terms of the transparency issue around inclusivity mm-hmm. and diversity, would you talk to me about the other areas, the non-gender issues, and what did you find there? Yeah, absolutely. So, obviously, there's multiple characteristics that are going to def- define any of us. Things like uh, gender and age, a lot of employers uh, employers generally will have those on their HR systems. But when you start looking at things like ethnicity or disability or sexual orientation, um, that's protected data. So mm. uh, employers... Yeah, particularly on the sexual orientation one, I, I was quite surprised at the low levels of firstly response. Um, do you think that there's still, um, uh, that people are afraid of bias in relation to this issue? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's surprising given we like to congratulate ourselves about how progressive we are on issues of equality in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, I, I was driving home uh, last week and I heard... Um, uh, a young teacher, Connor uh, Breeden, I think his name was, who spoke at the INTO conference a couple of weeks ago, talking about his experience um, as not being able to disclose that his partner was was sick because of that um, bias. And as it turned out, he ended up losing his job, which would, wouldn't happen. Uh, now the law has been changed since, but there is still a huge amount of bias. And it's, it's there for people who maybe have a disability, people who have aspects of their ethnicity that they feel that they can't openly discuss or, or share within the workplace. So there's a huge emotional tax for people, I think, if they can't really be themselves. Yeah, there's one, other, there's one other issue I just wanted to touch on in relation to this report, which is very comprehensive and lots of great recommendations for companies in it, um, was the issue of um, 
ageism within mm. the workforce. It's something that we don't talk a great deal about now. What did you find there in relation to the the age profile? So on the age profile, I mean, it's fairly reflective across the board. Most of the most of the uh, the, the companies that we we spoke to talk about age as part of it's one of the pillars of their diversity strategies. But actually, only a minority have started actively implementing mm. strategies around uh, a, a, an ageing workforce and promoting that multi-generational workplace. But it's something that's going to become more and more important. And Amanda, can I bring you in here on that issue? Um, multi-generational workforces are something that there's more recognition of now. But do you think that we're coming to a time when perhaps experience, which may have been older, undervalued in the past, is, is finally being recognised? Is that something your company's looking at? Um, I, I think in my experience... Um experience is hugely valued in an organisation. You know, in 123.e and RSA, insurance expertise is is so valuable because it's all about capability build and it's actually one of our pillars of our strategy is how do you pass on the experience and, and, and you know, encourage, um, uh, you know, new starts to have a career. And that does mean knowledge transfer. And we have some great managers who've been in the business a long time who are actively mentoring and, and you know, and sharing that knowledge. Um, and, and it's it's a part of it's the part of the workforce that's hugely valuable. Uh, but it's about making sure that that knowledge transfer happens and you don't lose the knowledge. And that opens up opportunities for young people to grow their careers as well. So there's a lot of avenues and just on the and the, on the um, the biases point you mentioned, I think it's really important that organisations roll out training around unconscious bias. Um, and we've done that right from our board to our exec to um, our people, our people leaders. It's mandatory uh, training because it's really important because, you know, we're all human. Yeah. We all have biases. And sometimes when you when you have that training and you see it, you can't unsee it. And, and you know, but it's, it's about constantly making sure that that's that's front of mind as well. Yeah, there's some fantastic examples of how uh, companies are doing just that. Uh, finally, Linda, could I just ask you if somebody was trying to find out more about this report, where could they find it? Um, on our website, so business in the community bitc.ie. Um, the the report is there, and all information about all of our initiatives and campaigns and that. Uh, that we run with business. That was the inaugural Business in the Community Ireland study and I was joined in studio by Linda O'Sullivan from Business in the Community Ireland and Amanda Johnson from RSA Insurance. Uh, Ladies, thank you very much for coming into studio today. Thank you so much. Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on Taking Stock. Coming up next, we'll go stateside to hear from the Financial Times US editor about how the American economy and its political landscape is shaping up ahead of the midterm elections. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm joined now uh, by Peter Spiegel, who's the US Managing Editor of the Financial Times. Now, Peter has a stunning career and CV. Uh, he's worked for <laughs> Forbes magazine, for the Los Angeles Times, for Wall Street Journal. He's been the Financial Times Bureau Chief in Brussels, reporting on the Eurozone at the time of its biggest crisis. He's also, as I say now, News Editor of uh, the US. And uh, Peter, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. It's going to be good to be back, Mandy. Well, I won't embarrass you by listing out the, the multiple awards that you've won, but I would like to start today uh, by asking you a little bit about your role in the Financial Times in the US. It's a truly global brand, placeless now in a way that I could only kind of compare with the BBC. And I, I'm assuming that your role is to explain America to the wider business world, but also that you're there to explain America to America. But what's that like? What's the readership yeah. like in America? What's your strategy for it? For the FD well, as you as you can hear from my accent, um, I am I am not uh, British, uh, so I've been sent uh, back here after about ten years abroad, both in Brussels and London, uh, to really, ex- frankly, expand our readership in the U.S. Mm. Um, you may know about six years ago we got acquired by Nikkei, which is a big Japanese financial media company, and they sort of came in and looked at our business strategy and said, you know what, there's 350 million English speakers in the U.S. Mm. and we're the Financial Times, and it's the biggest you know, financial center of the world is New York and it's a big economy. Why are we not bigger in the U.S.? So although traditionally the FT's role in the U.S. is, as you said, been to explain the U.S. to the world, we are increasingly, at least my role, is to try to convince Americans that, that, that they should read us. So we've that's been, uh, they've given us a bit of money um, and we've been investing. We reopened our Houston bureau, our L.A. bureau. We've expanded here in New York. Uh, we're expanding in, in San Francisco. So we really are making a push here in the U.S. And I, you know, touch wood, the numbers have been very good here. I mean, 
frankly, I wouldn't wish a, a pandemic or a war in Ukraine on anyone. But but the fact of the matter is, we have found that American readers are coming to us for those big international stories. And we've seen readers jump, you know, at the outset of, of the pandemic and jump again at the outset of the Ukraine war. And they really haven't gone away. And that's always been my sort of argument internally, which is, I know everyone in Europe knows who we are. Um, mm. I know everyone in the UK knows who we are. Uh, everyone in Ireland probably knows who we are. But in the US, we're still pretty unknown. Mm. And if people just showed up uh, to FG.com, we I think they'd like what we have to offer and they'd stick around. And so far, uh, that's that's been proven out. So fingers crossed. And is it hard for that quality considered journalism to cut through what I would call like a flash news cycle that is more commonplace in the US? I got to be honest with you, it's almost to our advantage, right? right? There is in almost every major American city, just like in Europe, there is going to be, and again, I hate to try to say this without sounding a little bit snooty, that there's going to be a group of highly educated people, doctors, lawyers, dentists, uh, and, and not just here in New York and San Francisco, but, but you know, in Phoenix, Arizona, and, and in Houston, and in, in Chicago, um, that just are uh, been basically repulsed by what is going on in, as you say, the flash news cycle, uh, the cable news, the vitriol, um, the Facebook, fake news, that mm. kind of stuff. And they really are now shifting and willing to pay for it, too. Mm. Mm. Uh, thank goodness um, for my salary. Um, you know, the really high-end quality news. And so you've seen the Wall Street Journal has done very well on that here in the U.S., the New York Times, the Washington Post has really sort of really rebuilt its, its entire brand based around this model. And, and as a result, we've actually been able to come in here and frankly, Americans are willing to pay for news uh, far more than they are in Europe, uh, we found. Now, again, in the UK particular, where you have the BBC, it's such a dominant news organization offering their stuff for free online, and The Guardian as well. There's less of, I think, a culture of paying for news, whereas in the US, um, people are willing to shell out money to pay for quality news. So again, it's always going to be a relatively niche market, mm -hmm. but for us, it's it's we think it's the most important niche in the world. So uh, thus far, we've, we've, we've seen, uh, you know, like I said, significant growth both in subscriptions and, and in traffic. Well, the media plays a big role in, in America as it does everywhere. Uh, but turning to the issue of the midterms and the primaries, uh, it's a bit tricky to, in this climate uh, of geopolitical shifting where all the plates are moving to try and predict what might happen in a couple of months' time. But what I wanted to do today is to give our listeners a flavour of where the Democrats and the Republicans find themselves in the run into those midterms. Um, uh, can you start with by, by giving us your analysis on, on President Biden? He came in with a great promise of calm after the storm. How has his presidency been viewed so far and what's his his narrative and his message to voters like in these primaries in the run-up to the November elections? Yeah, boy, it's a tough one. I mean, a lot of headwinds. I mean, mm. I think if you go back, I think the, the, the turning point really was the, the botched uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. And you can really see the polls. He went from uh, over 50% approval rating to under 50% approval rating around then. Because as you said, he came in sort of on a, on a message of competence, right? He's mm. not the most inspiring speaker. He's not Barack Obama or Bill Clinton when it comes to inspiring politicians. But, you know, firm hand on the wheel, um, you know, been around Washington, knows how to run things. And after a time of, of sort of four years of Trump chaos and the middle of a pandemic, here's a guy who knows how to, how to you know, run a government in a technocratic way. And I think the Afghanistan fiasco sort of, uh, you know, popped that bubble. And mm. the, the, the bigger headwinds right now are obviously economic. So he's, I, I, he's got a lot of credit, frankly, even through, through from the American people, if you look at the polling, for his handling of the war the, the bringing together the allies, the the incredible sort of unity that, there's, that we've seen against sort of the Russian aggression in Ukraine. So he's got a lot of credit for that. The problem is the knock-on effect has been inflation. Uh, you know, the market's really tanking this week, as as, as everyone's been watching. Um, and people are going to pay. You know, we're we're drivers in America. People going to to the pump to to fill up their 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 cars with petrol for either family vacation or even just sort of the, the work commute. And it's it's doubled. Uh, you know, and, and reaching sort of new all time highs almost every day. And that's what people vote on. They're going to the midterms. They're voting on pocketbook issues, particularly. You know, when incumbent president, there's already a trend to vote. You know, for the opposition party. Uh, in midterms to sort of send them a message. And I think he's facing a really tough uphill battle now going into the midterms, both because of the sort of the, the, the down, uh, downward trajectory of his presidency uh, since Afghanistan. But boy, the economic stuff in the last you know few weeks has really, really 
got pan- Democrats in a bit of a panic. Mm. As you say, the management of the economy will ultimately be, I suppose, a big uh, decider in, in how people view him. But he's also, and, and he's adapted his narrow, narrative to try and speak to that inflation issue, which is, of course, at record highs in the US as it is over here in Europe. Um, but he's also changed his narrative a little bit in relation to tackling the opposition um, and bringing in this... Uh, ultra MAGA um, uh, I suppose um, element to the speeches he's been making is that an attempt to try and appeal to a softer Republican vote uh, in these primary elections? Yeah, I mean, look, he, he has built his, his, his history in Washington as a bipartisan figure. I mean, he's worked across the aisle in the Senate and was sort of the last of the old school mm. sort of, you know, bipartisan figures um, uh, in the US political scene. And I think he came into office thinking, Look, I know how to deal with Republicans. I've done in the past. You know, he was a pallbearer at John McCain's uh, funeral. You know, he's a guy who really takes pride in the fact that he's able to work with Republicans. The problem is the Republican Party today is not the Republican Party of 1992 or of, of 2002 or of 20, even 2012. And at every turn, he has found the Republicans have just decided they're not going to cooperate. Mm. And, you know, I think in the last sort of four to six weeks, he has made the decision that I cannot win uh, in the midterms, and frankly, probably re-election if he does decide to run in 2024, with a kumbaya, come let us cooperate, this is a different Republican Party, and he really needs to define the Democrats against what is increasingly an extremist party. Now, mm. we've seen some of these Republican primaries, Pennsylvania being the, the most important one that just happened on Tuesday. You know, the, the, the governor, the governor uh, nominee for the Republicans is an all-out MAGA-Trump candidate who believes the 2020 election were stolen in Pennsylvania. I mean, they're nominating some really, really out there kind of candidates. And I think what the calculus now is, if we can't win on on substance, because they've had a struggle to get their legislative agenda through Congress, that we have to try to run on politics. And the politics right now, they think, and it's increasing the noise you're hearing out of Washington, is that by nominating these far right MAGA guys, the Republicans are, are shooting themselves in the foot. That, that these moderate Republicans, and again, I, I, I did a lot of coverage back in my, my youth in Pennsylvania in particular, you have these voters in, the, in particular suburban Philadelphia, which are pretty Republican areas. They, they don't like high taxes. Um, you know, they, they're, they're pretty conservative on, on cultural issues. But they're, but they're you know, they're, they're, they're family people who have, uh, you know, your regular concerns of your, your normal Americans, and they do not like the craziness that's been going on. Uh, with the Trumpistas. And those kind of voters who should be voting Republican for economic reasons are peel-offable, uh, for lack of a better <laughs> word, on these cultural issues, on these on these slightly crazy MAGA conspiracy issues. And they think they can win over these these, these Democratic moderates and these, and these Republican moderates back into the Democratic fold by just being, uh, by, by sort of trumpeting uh, hey, you realize what these guys are saying? They're, 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 they're full of these wild conspiracy theories. Um, it remains to be seen if this is an election winner. Remember, Donald Trump was elected uh, in 2016 on a a rather bonkers um, platform. And we've seen in other races where some of these people have been very successful. But the Democrats are now increasingly believing that the Republicans have gone overboard on some of this stuff and they have some opportunities to to hold ground in states that they may have may have been been at risk of just just a month ago. Now, as you say, Donald Trump is kind of driving the Republicans to a more extreme right, if you like, and Biden is is trying to do something to to sort of counteract that now. Um, But I want to ask you two questions. One, why is Donald Trump still so prevalent and is that normal uh, uh, for a president to have lost the presidential election and still be a significant figure in this and secondly why are the republicans allowing him to drive their agenda is it to do with his voter appeal or is it to do with fundraising so i mean you have you have you have focused on the biggest question that everyone in washington has been asking themselves literally for for you know president of the united states but but certainly since he left office um, and frankly, even since he lost the election, mm. not only does it, is it abnormal for a, a one-term president, let's forget, let's not forget, I mean, he lost and he lost pretty handily. And our one-term presidents, you know, George H.W. Bush, Jimmy Carter, you know, these are not people who become standard bearers for their party after they leave office. I mean, Jimmy Carter was sort of, you know, hidden under a under a bench for for for, for 15 years before he was sort of resurrected. I mean, these are these are certainly usually embarrassments to the party. And I think most Republicans thought particularly on November 7th, that he'd go away. And, and you saw even, I remember talking to some modern mm. Republicans who, 
who you know say different things in 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 private than they do in in public. That let's just let Trump vent for a couple of weeks. He'll go away now because he's lost. And here we are a year later, and he's still the dominant figure in the Republican Party. So it is sui generis. It is unique in American political history, like almost everything Trump-related. A couple of things which I think are going on here. One is the politics of celebrity. This is something that's been mm. going on, frankly, for decades. And he has, as a celebrity, before he even ran for president, uh, been able to sort of uh, have a megaphone there that people listen to. He even got shut off Twitter. You know, he's able to really, particularly on things like Fox News and some of these right-wing uh, uh, political, uh, you know, websites and 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 the right wing media speak to this Republican base that we used to think was probably 20, 25 percent of the party, but actually is showing up 35, 40 percent of the voters right now. Mm. Um, so there, there's that ability as a celebrity to really dominate the the airwaves. The other thing is, I was just had a change in the American electorate where either because of you know the rise of social media, the polarization of the electorate. They are much more susceptible to believing these slightly, you know, wacko QAnon kind of conspiracies, um, and therefore what Trump is peddling makes a lot of sense to them. There has also we can't forget, and this happens in, in Europe as it does here, where you've seen the rise of Le Pen and and Orban and 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 some of the other sort of right wing populists in Europe. There is a reason why a lot of American voters are are you know. Are, are win up overall on this issue, mm. which is there's a whole basically 10, 20 years of globalization where your average working class American has seen his his wages stagnate. Uh, you know, really sort of the big manufacturing jobs have disappeared. They've been forced into to low paying service economy jobs. And these are happening in the big industrial states that have been traditional Democratic strongholds. So, you know, they have been left behind. So yeah, they vote I, for Marine Le Pen, they vote for Donald Trump, and, and they're just angry. And I'm reading a very interesting book at the moment called Wildland, The Making of American's Fury. Mm. And it, 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 it puts a proposition out there that, look, the American situation was a tinderbox and, and something would have caused it to get to this extreme point were it not for Donald Trump. Now, he, he is, as you say, a very volatile figure who has imposed his own agenda. I just... Um, heard last week about his interview process for the candidates in Mar-a-Lago, which resembles something between a Miss World pageant and the Apprentice <laughs> episode. It's just bizarre. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and we're talking to Peter Spiegel, the US Managing Editor of the Financial Times. Peter, um, just one final question on the US element of it, and then I'd like to pick your brains on Europe for a second, if I can. Um Traditionally, the incumbent uh, party doesn't win these midterms elections. Do you think Biden, President Biden, can book the trend here? I, if I was a betting man, I would say no. Okay. Um, but I would say that this, this theme we were talking about before, if you look at, for instance, Ohio Senate uh, nominee J.D. Vance, really hardcore right wing um, pro-Trump MAGA guy, again, the governor of, of Pennsylvania, the nominee Republicans picked. What we're seeing is Trump, you know, endorsed nominees who are way out of the mainstream are winning the nomination in some of these big sort of traditionally moderate states. And I think what we're seeing to see is a glimmer of hope within the Democratic Party that if the, the, the Republicans continue this trend, they may be driving off a cliff. Mm. Now, again, if I were betting, I would say that, that Biden's in big trouble. But it'll be interesting to see because these primaries are coming up now every Tuesday. we got another one coming up in, in Georgia on, on next Tuesday, which will be interesting to watch. And, and so it's worth keeping an eye on to see if these slightly bonkers right-wing uh, Trumpistas continue to win. Because yeah, they see, do. I think the Democrats are going to be pretty happy about it. See if there's a, a trend there. Um now, as I mentioned at the outset, you were bureau chief in Brussels during the Eurozone crisis, which many here would argue was the origin really for, for this iteration of Brexit. But can I ask you if you've been following and what's your assessment of the moves by the UK to unilaterally abandon uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol? We've heard much here in Ireland about the support that we can rely on from US figures such as Richie Neal, Nancy Pelosi and President Biden himself. Do you think that that's something that could actually scupper a UK-US? trade deal. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because look, let's be honest with you. There is no British lobby in America. Mm. There is a very powerful Irish lobby in America. Um, and you've mentioned some of the congressmen who are very prominent on this. And again, it goes back to these big swing states where there is a lot of, there's a big Irish and more broadly, you know, Catholic vote, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Um, these are big swing states. And these are places where you have the Irish diaspora calling up their congressmen and, 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 and saying, hey, look, 
this is very important to us. And I think the Brits get very annoyed at this, to be honest mm. with you. You know, they do not have a an American, <laughs> uh, you know, voter pool to pull from. And I think you're going to see that this is the single most important issue when it comes to an American decision about whether to do a, a U.S.-U.K. trade deal. And, and and frankly, this is this is bipartisan. This has happened. You know, I remember you remember the whole Barack Obama traveling to London um, uh, ahead of Brexit, where he met with with Cameron and said, "You guys are going back in the queue." That's if, right. If, yeah. if, you know, and you know, everyone thought, "Ah, oh, this is he's doing Cameron's bidding." But but no, it's true. Mm. You know, the fact of the matter is, the EU and by extension Ireland is more important to the the U.S. in terms of a, as a market than the U.K. is. Which okay, it's a G7 country, but it's a relatively mid-sized G7 country, and certainly not of of the kind of economic power that the EU has. And again, I think the, the uniqueness of the Irish lobby in America cannot be underestimated. Yeah. And it's not just the size of it, it's the states that they're in. It's these big industrial states that are swing states for presidential elections and this, these congressional midterms. And and, and and remember, Joe Biden is, is, is a proud Irishman himself. And, and the fact of the matter is, there's just a, a significant voter block and lobby in Washington that American politicians listen to and advocate for that, that the Brits really can't forget about. Yeah, and the contribution of the US to the peace process uh, over decades now, I don't think can be underestimated. I, I worked for the government and part of my role was uh, on the Northern Ireland brief. And, you know, even President Bush, who we wouldn't think of here as aligned to, to Ireland, was very familiar, very uh, helpful uh, to the cause at very difficult times. So final question for you now. I know you're on the inside track of everything in America and every week here we have a report from a different newspaper saying that President Biden is going to come to Ireland. So have got any insider knowledge for us? I don't. I don't. Now, obviously, he's traveled there quite a bit before. Uh, he is. He touts his, his Irishness at almost every stop uh, on the campaign trail. Um, but alas, I do not have any insight uh, on that. Um, we do watch for it. Our, we have a, a bona fide born and raised Irishman in our, in our Washington Bureau who takes special interest in this. Um, and he's always updating me on uh, – he and, and Biden have had a back and forth on this a couple of times about – whether he's a real Irishman or not, um, and uh, so I have I have the pipes into the to the to the. To, to the Washington Irish scene, but I have yet to see a, a smoke signal on this, but I'll let you know as soon as I hear it. Well, we'll monitor uh, the FT with closely. Um, can I just uh, end this by wishing you well with your uh, future plans for the FT in the US and to thank you very much for your fascinating insights to the midterms and the primaries which are ongoing. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Peter Spiegel, US Managing Editor of the Financial Times. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Andy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope that you found today's conversations interesting. Next week, we'll be looking at the issue of banter in the workplace with a clinical psychologist to find out exactly how Irish business can tackle the issue head on. And now while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to all today's guests and to Taking Stock producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and they'll be talking to one of the world's top transplant surgeons about the cutting edge science in transplantation. And then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.